Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcast blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we are rewinding back to... June the 15th, 2012, originally episode 923, it was titled Jeff Lawton on Site Selection, Mainframe Earthworks, GMOs, and more. This is another episode that has only become more relevant over time. I want you to pay particular attention to my lead question to Jeff about choosing a property and choosing an urban property and choosing a more rural property. And I want you to pay particular attention to the first part. And I'll tell you, there's a point where he like he kind of defines the question to make sure that he's heard it properly and to set the stage for his answer. And then he'll go, urban. The way he kind of draws out urban. right? And then he gives the answer to that. I will tell you that this is one of the most memorable answers, and almost every time I talk to Jeff, in my head I hear him go, say this urban, because the answer that follows is so spot on about understanding the intrinsic value of a piece of land in a totally different way than the market understands that piece of land. And while that was really important back in 2012, it's even more important now that land prices, property prices, real estate values, and interest rates to loan against have inflated so much in 11 years. This is more true now than ever. And finding those gems, understanding things like wind shadowing, building shadow, solar aspect, and thinking about it from a standpoint of what can this property give me versus how close am I to a trendy pizza place where I can spend $14 on a slice of pizza and a beer, right? Or probably more, for a slice of pizza and a beer, probably more like 20 bucks. That's far less important than a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today. We also dig into genetic modified organisms. We also dig into earthworks and a ton of other stuff. I really enjoyed doing this interview and every interview that I've ever done with Jeff. Jeff is one of the best teachers I've ever met. He's definitely one of those mentors from afar, and he's always been willing to help me out. Whenever I've had a question about something, something I can't quite grok, he's always been willing to aid me with it and assist me with it. And uh, I'm very fortunate to have this long-term relationship with Jeff and to have him part of the MS, or I'm sorry, the, the, the uh, expert council. On that note, I do need some more questions for Mr. Lawton uh, so we can get you off to a great start when I get back from California. And uh, so if you have any questions for Jeff, send them in to jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC expert in the subject line. And then put question for Jeff Lawton or any other expert council member. Give me your question in one sentence with a question mark after it. And then hit return and then give me some details and I'll get it over to Jeff or the appropriate expert just priming the pump for when I get back so we have lots of expert counsel content for you on those Friday shows with that let's rewind now all the way back to June the 15th 2012 originally episode 923 Jeff Lawton on site selection mainframe earthworks GMOs and more and remember you can always support this show how just start your online shopping at tspaz.com with that I've got all the uh Housekeeping wrapped up for today, and again, it's my good pleasure to introduce somebody that has truly been a mentor and a teacher for me. 
It's not actually often that I find someone that I, I look at their teaching and I become really enamored with their teaching. It, it's actually very seldom. A lot of times I'll find somebody, I'll learn a few things from them, and I'll go, okay, that's that. But it's very seldom that I find a person that every single thing they put out I want to hear because it so resonates with me, and I always continue to learn from it, and I always feel not just educated but entertained and, and engaged. And, and that is how I would describe Jeff Lund. He's on my short list of of not just permaculture visionaries, but but absolutely outstanding, amazing teachers. Uh, I'll be honest, a lot of times I listen to a teacher and I go, now that I know what they know, I can teach it better than they can. Uh, Jeff is like, uh, to me, it would be like if I'm a, a student of physics and I'm struggling to get through it, uh, he's like the reincarnation of Einstein. Uh, I have seen him explain things that are very, very complicated on a blackboard, and I've watched it, and I've gone... I understand it completely, and I think he's the only person that could have done that for me. He's here to share that type of teaching with us today. And with that, hey, Jeff, welcome back to the Survival Podcast, man. Uh, thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, last time we kind of talked about a whole varied bunch of different things. I, I had a lot of questions from people that after you were on that were relating to things about like looking for land, like what they should look for when they're evaluating a purchase of land. And I had two totally different camps, so I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit about like what to look for in both both worlds, so to speak. One is from the person that's going to buy in typical suburbia, uh, but they want to try to pick the best property they can, and the other is the person that wants to say buy ten, twenty acres and do more of a of a rural farming type thing. So, are there certain things that if you were consulting with somebody on looking for property in those two worlds that you would tell them to try to find or try to avoid? Oh yeah. Um, especially at the moment, because the open uh, the market's open um, and doesn't recognise the value that we do. So that you can actually pick up quite a bargain um, in a permaculture sense of bargain. It's not necessarily recognised in the open market. Um, so urban. The funny thing is, if you're going to do an urban institute, which we're encouraging people to do, I often say get the uh, the, the 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 most average house um, and um, and and uh, probably one of the cheapest and 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 and, and sort of uh, one of the worst houses in town, let's say, um, that's just a sort of average house with an empty backyard, and just make sure you've got good solar aspect. Um, a, a backyard that's empty or just full of lawn and a, a sort of run-down average old house is a great one to do up and change over into uh, an energy-efficient house and a, and a complete transformation backyard, uh, uh, back garden um, or garden. Um, so in the suburbs, what you really do have to watch out for is uh, solar, um, the solar aspect. Are you facing the sun? Are, are you not too shadowed? Um, the problem is the solution in permaculture, um, or you've got to be careful because the solution can be the problem as well if you don't design it right. But <laughs> um, you can be very wind shadowed uh, in the suburbs, which is great. You can be out of the wind, or you can be in a wind tunnel. Uh, you can be in the shade of other buildings, or you can be in a uh, microclimate, and the thermal mass um, could be an advantage. Um, if you're in a cool climate, or it could be a heat trap if you're in a more subtropical, tropical, or even a desert climate. You've got to think about 
Um, what makes it comfortable in that climate and what kind of microclimate would make it more comfortable? Um, so in, in the tropics quite often or in the, in a desert region, you'd be looking for a shadier garden, really, a shadier position. And you want to use the thermal mass to, to, to bank the cold. Where if you're in a cold climate, you're looking the other way round. You're looking to, uh, you want a, a sun trap and you want to bank the heat. Um, in, in the urban area, because the, the, the square meterage, the, the square footage, I've got to keep talking in American terms here so we cross both fields of measurement. Uh, but uh, um, you, you don't really have to worry about the soil so much because... Um, in, in that small area, you can build soil so fast. And at the moment, where people aren't really valuing organic matter in cities, and there's just this enormous surplus of compostable material that you can almost be paid to remove, which is crazy. You're paid at both ends, really. You get good soil out of what people pay you to take away, <laughs> almost. Um, you can build soil at a rapid, rapid rate, quicker than anywhere. So soil's not so important. Um, I, I suppose if you want to move quickly and you're in a you know, reasonable area, but if you're in an area where you want to help other people move into an area where people could be helped with a conversion and, and everybody can take on the same system when they see you, you're improving your life and everything, um, you can extend your system out through, through neighborhoods. Um, a house, you have to be careful if, it, if it's hard to change the house around to be more in a, any energy efficient. So a house that faces the right way can at least have a conversion of, of windows so that you get the right sunlight in or you block the right sunlight out if you're in the tropics or, 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 or deserts. So um, those are all crucial things I'd think about in, in an urban sense. Um, uh, you can also track quite a lot of water in the suburbs from hardwood hard surface runoff. So when the you know there's a lot of areas that are just solid material that that run off. Now um, if you're if you're in an area where there's too much running through your 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 land, um, that could be difficult to control. If you're right next to a storm drain, often it it can be turned into an asset. Um, but you can look at get, you know capturing water off roads, <coughs> off roofs, off driveways, off hard surfaces, um, to your advantage. And, and any urban toxicity um, can be mitigated in, in, in large amounts of organic matter included in the soil. Composting systems are, are wonderful sponges through their, their carbon interactions as, as the decomposition process happens. So I, I often say to people, look, if you're breathing the air in the suburbs, you're probably quite fine to, to drink water off the roof once you've... Uh, <laughs> yeah, good point. I mean, you know, like it, you're talking about air pollution coming down on roofs. I mean, most of the time, a little bit of limestone in your in your water tank uh, will take the pH to a level where heavy metals are not water soluble and they're taken out at the bottom of the tank in uh, anaerobic decomposition. And your soils can be mitigated really quickly with uh, deep mulches and compost. So that's the urban take. I think that's in brief. Um, when you get rural... Um, there's a few things really. Um, there's a lot of rural land out there um, that's inappropriate because you don't have good access to water. 
Um, you've got to look at land where am I going to get enough water? Are, are there features in the landscape where I could trap water? Um, can I impound water? Can I make dams? Uh, have I got access to a creek? Um, is the groundwater shallow? In other words, not too deep. We, we're talking about 800 feet or less. If you start tapping into water that's more than 800 feet deep, uh, you probably can never really replenish that with activities on the surface. Because then uh, we're down into fossil aquifers, right? Yeah, you're in that fat fossil aquifer, and you're really into a finite resource again, which is not it's not our game at all, um, and it never needs to be. We we can do everything in those shallower aquifers and swales and, and leaky dams and, and gabions and, and limonia-type systems that soak water into the... Uh, aquifer will replenish that and, and, and over a large area we could do that very 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 well and prove it um, so access to water is a big thing and then reasonable soils if you start going on to landscape that's got uh, really poor soils uh, the broader area uh, is harder to recover the soil on mass uh, your influence over the area is much less and especially if you want to move in and get going quickly over a broader area um, or you want to set up a, a, uh, um, a community system, something like a community land trust, which is the new sort of system uh, uh, taken on from eco villages. Those, those sort of systems, um, there's no point in buying sort of poor access to uh, water and uh, poor soil property. Uh, the next one is difficult slopes. If the slopes are too steep um, uh, or too awkward or they face the wrong way, the, the solar aspect is bad, they're too shady, they're too cold or they're too hot and dry if you're in a, in a desert region, um, there's, you know, that's just making life difficult for you. So water, soil, um, angle of slope, those all make a, a very big difference on your choice. Now. The other thing is if it's covered in forest and it's reasonable regrowth forest um, or it's old growth forest, I mean, that would be just a tragedy. Are we going to go in and cut down old growth forest to put in a sustainable system? That's not what we're about. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because as I've been looking for land myself, I mean, that's one of the things I'm running into. I find land, you know, 20 acres and it's heavily wooded. And I just go, I'd prefer that to stay the way that it is. Or the five acres I have now, it's 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 25-year-old regrowth forest, and it's steep slope and it's rocky, and it would just seem like I would be doing more harm than good. Yeah, I mean, some of those properties can be set up as nice retreats, and, and you can put a tiny garden in or a small garden, in, and you can get away by yourself. But if you want a bit more area to work, uh, yeah, we shouldn't be taking down um, – reasonable quality forest you have to draw a line sometimes um, in the subtropics um, where I live which is a, a climate similar to parts of Florida um, I'll, I'll take down 20 year old low quality regrowth forest so it's 20 years old it's not high quality forest and it's not it's not moving through to a very high quality rainforest type species assembly it's just an average sort of reasonably low quality regrowth. I'll take that down to put in water systems, especially dams, um, because I'll see the exchange of uh, environment as, as an improvement. So uh, shallow water, uh, shallow lakes and ponds, uh, faster soil builders and forest, 
and, and an exchange here of about 20 years of low-quality uh, low forest to water systems, I'll, I'll, I'll make that move. But after that, I'm, I'm very much questioning whether I take it down. The other thing is that, you know, unless you actually want to, your, your main mission is to improve forest and become a, a, um, a farm forestry, mainly a farm forestry system, um, you really, you're putting yourself in the shade, you're making it awkward, there might even be local trees that are somewhat allopathic and, and don't easily, you know, not much grows underneath them well. Um, so you're just making it awkward for yourself. So a lot of the alternative movement in the early sort of days, in the last 20, 30 years, they, they, they moved on to the early community lands um, with this dream, which is not a bad dream, but they, they bought land that was poor access, uh, poor water, poor access to water, low quality soil difficult slopes, covered in forest, then moved in and, and tried to, you know, be sustainable in the shade in a very awkward situation. And it's understandable that they didn't work. There was quite a few type one errors. Um, and then they went into strange decision making processes, which sort of threw out all the traditions that we've had for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years almost, um, and, and tried to create a new paradigm of human settlement. Um, very difficult, but now there are there are um, more successful communities um, popping up because of our ability to help with design and property choice. Uh, very important, and we can save people a lot, a lot of time and heartache um, by looking, helping them look for land. In fact, it's actually quite a uh, it's actually quite a, a good business as a permaculture consultant designer to go out and look for land that's worth developing and just put in the mainframe developments. And we've done a little bit of that. Look for properties that have good dam sites, um, good slopes, good soil and water, and put in the, the dams, the swales, uh, the house sites, because people often don't know where to position themselves in the landscape. So, so we you mean by mainframe, like the major earthworks and, and the, the, the initial stuff that you do, the, the hardscaping, so to speak, uh, and then let somebody else design it up from there? Yeah, give, give them the pleasure of, 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 of putting the bo uh, filling out the flesh on the bones of your mainframe design. So the mantra of a lot of design consultants in permaculture goes in this order, water, access, structural positions. So you go in, because water is so important and, it, and it's got so many constants about the way it behaves. Get those water points and, and contour lines well defined and, and installed. Harmonize your um, access around the water points and contour lines and positions. So what access harmonizing with water pattern and we know access is much easier to maintain because it's very expensive to install and and can be expensive to maintain if you don't get it right keep your access on contour or down the middle of, or as close to contour as possible and then second choice down the middle of ridge lines so the water shed off access ways ah. is shared and then position your um, structures in 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 really a multifunctional position so your house site needs to be sort of mid slopes it definitely needs to be below water sources so you've got gravity fed water so uh, we would go in and we'd we would find properties with really good dam sites that, that you can easily build at a low cost and get good storage of water then put in our swell soakages um, 
and uh, set up the gravity irrigation systems, uh, put in the, the main driveway and the track accesses around the property, um, develop the property with the major tree plantings on swales, all on gravity drip irrigations, um, get the property up in a bit of respectable looking maintenance, so um, tractor uh, slashing the grass and, and getting it tidied up a bit. Um, and then nice house site, and, and the very last thing we do is a very good quality driveway finished off very nicely graveled and, 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 and rolled in and then sell it on um, with the um, uh, profit put on the, the, the developed earthworks a bit. So, uh, and um, it, it leaves the client who buys in saying, oh, I can, I can, I can still, you know, um, put in my house that I've fantasized about in a really good position, maybe looking at a featured dam with really good gravity irrigation and I'm set to go. I can, I can live the dream from there. And a lot of people don't put enough thought into those very basic mainframe designs. Well, yeah, because everybody designs everything in a square and, and they think in that, that geometrically boring way. And what you're describing reminds me of, like, remember the old paint-by-numbers stuff where it would say, like, put blue in, in, in you know, in all the ones that say nine. And it's almost like you're giving the person the paint-by-numbers, but they pick their own colors. That's it. I mean, you can – a lot of people come in and they start fantasizing about the finer details, which is fine if you've got the main frame right. Yeah. So, they don't put enough time and thought into those very, very big mainframe positionings um, because that sets the foundation of everything that happens from then on. And, and one of the classics here in Australia, and I expect it's the same in a lot of places, people often build on the top of the hill for a view. Sure. And they're above all their potential water sources. And, and you're going to be running pumps and, 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 and maintain, maintenance on infrastructure forever from then on. And if the power goes off, you're probably going to be carrying water. Which or you're going to have a lot of stuff die before you get it irrigated. Yeah. Where if it's, you know, if it's, you can set properties up to be drought-proofed and automatic irrigation with nothing but gravity-fed water systems. So um, it's a pleasure to see what happens when you get it right and, and people end up in a very stable lifestyle and, um, and often in a very stable family situation where they, their, uh, their family... Is, uh, is, is one that goes on as a, a very stable family um, that inherits the property and continues generation after generation developing a, a really good system. And, that, and eventually, if enough people do that, we develop a really good community, of course. Yeah. Um, here's the thing that keeps coming up, and it's because of you, by the way. You're the primary one. There's <laughs> some other work that's been done out there that's, that's caused a swell, but you're the one I hear in the email all the time that they've watched, Greening the Desert and Greening the Desert, the sequel. And then these folks go out and they look on eBay here and they see that they can buy land like in West Texas or New Mexico where there's very low rainfall. I, I would say they're, they're, the environments are, to be fair, not as harsh as some of the things that you did in Jordan. But they watch your video and they think, well, I'll go buy this piece of wasteland in West Texas and I'll, I'll do it up with some swales and things the way that, that Jeff did. And, and I'll green the desert myself. And I think that's a noble ideal, but could you maybe tell people, what, what are you really getting into when you do something like that? Yeah. Well, you're getting into an environment that, if you get a result, it really stands out. Okay. <laughs> so, it's a, you know, if you get it right in those harsh environments, then it, it, it becomes extremely obvious that you've got quite a result. Um, 
you're you're in a situation where where water is everything and every drop counts. So uh, your water positions uh, and your water harvesting is crucial. So it's kind of ironic that you're in a situation where there doesn't really appear to be very much water, and um, you um, and yet you're designing mainly to capture it when it arrives. Um, a lot of people don't realise that uh, water um, in the in the dry and desert regions arrives in very large amounts, uh, very infrequently. So. Um, as the classic, classic author of, of uh, The Secret Knowledge of Water, David Childs, puts it, uh, a desert is a flood waiting to happen. So um, that's one of the big ironic situations in deserts, and you have to design for a flood that's about to happen. And that seems really daft um, because <laughs> we're, we're, <laughs> um, we've relied on pumps and, and, and infrastructure um, that supplies with water from underground and all those sort of systems and um, and we've forgotten about these these traditional systems and um, the new uh, application of design around that so you're waiting for that flood and then you you need to design so that anti-evaporation is your main theme that the reason you're in a dry land um, a desert is a, is a landscape where the evaporation is much higher than the rainfall. So marginal deserts are a 50-50. A, a 50% uh, of the time the rainfall is over the evaporation, there's more rainfall than evaporation, and, and half of the year the rainfall is less than the evaporation. The evaporation is much higher. Now if those areas are deforested, if the forest is removed, if the tree cover is removed from those marginal areas, they become the extension of desert. Now, the reason for that is the condensation that drips off the trees, which is very rarely counted, can equal 80% of the rainfall. So that adds an, a volume of up to 80% of water hitting the soil over rainfall. Now, it's the condensation drip off the trees. Now, if you take that, that, that condensating area away by deforesting, and these brittle landscapes can be easily deforested and, 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 main, and the, 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 the deforestation can be, can be perpetuated by overgrazing or burning and overgrazing. Uh, they're easily burnt, they're easily overgrazed, they're easily damaged. Um, then you then you greatly increase the the effect of, of evaporation and you diminish the overall precipitation because you've lost the condensating figure. So at any cost, and I mean any cost, you have to cover the soil. You have to get in there somehow and wait for rain if you've got no no irrigation of any sort. Maybe you can pump from underground in the shallow aquifers or whatever. Um, and you wait for rain with your water capturing, water soaking systems. And when it comes, you plant, 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 plant the hardiest and hardiest and hardiest of species. Because it doesn't matter what it is, really. You just want shade and a condensating surface. Because the hot winds will cause evaporation. So you, you've got to get some windbreaks up, and those are hardy trees. 
the full sun will increase evaporation, so you've got to get shade. Um, and you'll get the condensation on top, and then over time you'll get organic matter from those hardy elements. If possible, bring some in and get some hard, uh, organic matter going, because the more organic matter on the soil and in the soil, the more retention of, of, of moisture, and you, you want to retain every bit of moisture. So anti-evaporation first at all costs, at all costs. Then you can start to get up and out. You're getting into the shade, you're getting into the cool, you're getting out of the hot winds, you're increasing organic matter. And, and it's really permaculture 101 with full faith and belief in what you're doing. Mm. And you really can't, you really can't compromise on that. You must. So it's a, it's a great area to work if you've got commitment and passion because um, uh, very quickly it responds. Dry areas often have a lot of residual fertility. Because nothing, um, if, you, if you're in a... There's uh, a lot of mineral fertility there, definitely, right? Yeah, and, and a lot of organic matter just hangs about. If the donkey right. dies in a, in a harsh desert, it's there for four years later, sort of withering away as a skin and bone. Mm. If the donkey dies in the subtropics or, or, or tropics, it's gone in a week. Yep. It just pops away. I mean, everything just decomposes in high humidity. But in those dry landscapes... There's a lot of organic matter sitting around, and, 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 and quite a lot is blown in the wind. So your trees not only are a wind buffer to evaporation, um, they're also uh, an airborne nutrient catch. They're catching minerals and right. organic matters in those dusts and winds. So you, you, once you start moving forward in the positive, it doesn't matter what landscape you're in, you're, you're on a positive track and on you go and then the refinements come in so that's mainframe deserts for you in, in brief you, your refinements come in later and then you can start playing you can't play with any of this stuff to start with you're on a rule game you've got to do it right there's a question I'd like to ask you on this when I look at the desert regions of the world I see these areas that it, it, like you've talked about has expanded into so like a, another Fascinating story for me is Yucuba Sakadoa in uh, the Sahel region of Africa with Zai farming and bring the forest back in the sub-Saharan region. So, like, in that region, if we could somehow get a time machine and we could go back in time 400 years and go to that area that he's working in, it would be a sub-desert, but it would be a forested sub-desert. If we go north into the Sahara, to the dead center of it, even a thousand years ago, it pretty much would look the way that it does. So when we're looking to rehabilitate these lands, do you think we should be looking more to places where it's, it's, it's been expanded by human activity than the place where it's basically, that just is, is what it is? Uh, I think uh, human activity can be reversed, and as negative as we presently are, we could be equally positive. And I, don't, I, have no, I have no doubt whatsoever about that. So um, whatever we're doing now in the negative sense, if you turn that round and, and made it the reverse positive, we could do that and not only do that, we could increase that function. So we could probably reforest every desert on the planet. Do you think we could reforest the deserts that were deserts before we screwed it up is what I'm asking, right? So, again, there's these places like I could take you to places in Arizona that if, if again, if we could go back 250 years, they were forested deserts. They were green deserts, Right. Uh, but then the war effort and cotton growth and all, and Bill did some work on this with Global Gardener in the 80s and showed these swales that were out there. They, 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 they expanded the, the, the true desert. And that's one thing. But do you think we could go into these places that, you know, before we even screwed it up, it was already just sand 
could that could those areas be greened, or do we need to focus on what we screwed up before we try to fix what was always that way? I guess if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think we could. The only point in doing it would be a showcase at this okay. stage. There's enough of the marginal area we can move in towards those areas, and and and, and I think over a very long over well a reasonable length of time we can change cl climate and moderate those areas and creep into them. I mean, we could do it for a showcase. Um, uh, I don't think we've got time for showcases at the moment, really. Um, but those marginal areas, um, if you look at the work of John Louis, uh, John Louis in, in China and the Laos Plateau, yep. where they reforested you know, 35,000 um, square kilometers, the size of Belgium, over 10 years, and they did it with just $500 million. Yep. It's incredibly cheap what they what they what they achieved there in the Laos Plateau, and I'm working with John Louis. Uh, made that famous film, Hope in a Changing Climate. Incredible showcase work. One of you the know, I just it's, it's 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 funny you say that. I just saw that for the first time last week. A listener sent it to me. They they start out in China and then they go to Africa, and they show how they've basically done the same thing in two places in different ways, and they've had the same results. It's it's absolutely amazing what they they did in China and Ethiopia. Yeah, Ethiopia and Rwanda. Now, Rwanda's taking on the system right across the landscape. John's working with us on broad landscape rehabilitation institutes, permaculture institutes at the center of all his work. 10,000 square kilometers in Oman is coming online. Um, they've seen that, you know, it's our duty to repair the broad damaged ecosystems of the planet. We've proved we can do it. Now, the water starts to flow. The, the water is trapped in the, in the vegetation. The, in, in the film, Hope in a Changing Climate, you see the water flowing in the valley in Ethiopia after about just eight years. That's, that's all it took. Um, now, if you're in a landscape, just, just a trick for people, if, they, if they're in a, a deserted landscape and you look up at the hills and they're rounded, they're not angular, you're in a landscape that was definitely quite well forested. And a lot of the Middle East is like that. You look up around the hills in Amman, even around Jerusalem, and, and, and you see rounded hills uh, in a deserted landscape. That means that it was that marginal landscape that was part of the year evaporation over rainfall, part of the year rainfall over evaporation, and water has shaped those rounded hills over millennia. They, that area can definitely be easily reforested. And as we then move in, we can take, we can revegetate. Uh, let the term forest brings up visions of giant forests. But let's say we can, we can very much stabilize and revegetate um, the area. What's Texas forest? The trees are, you know, 15 feet high and there's a lot of scrub and everything. But it's, it's green and it's stable. That's it, yeah. That we can do all that. I mean, I don't think that's, that's difficult very much at all. Um, I think um, we, should, we should be a, a lot more positive about those situations, um, especially with the, the, the present technology and equipment we have. Um, it just has to be applied into, into really good design. Another system that you need to look at, and it's fascinating, is the work of Tony Rinaldo, who works for World Vision. Um, because of the um, Google Earth images and the satellite images we now have dating back over 20 years, um, he was picked up in Niger in Africa and through satellite imagery, they said, what 
the hell is going on in Niger? It's turning <laughs> green while the rest of Africa gets brown, more brown every year. Wow. And they went on down into Niger, and there's Tony. And he's been in there slogging away for 20 years. He's a student of mine from a PDC and working with a $2 pocket knife. And they said, well, this is incredible. I mean, people can't fix the desert with $20 billion. He's got a $2 pocket knife, and he's showing people how to manage the grazed trees that regrow as a multi-stemmed coppice bush. And if you cut them to the strongest leader and maintain the regrowth as just one leader, they turn back into a tree in three years. Oh, wow. Very quickly, because the root system is so deep. And they prove their genetics, their, their, their living proof of their genetic strength, because they handle mostly goats and, and, and animal grazing every year. Now, he literally, single-handedly and doggedly, get work with people to give them ownership on those trees and got them up, uh, reforested and put 500,000 tons of grain production on the country. And, and he calls the system FMNR, Farmer Managed Natural Region. He's now working all over the world with that system. Um, an incredibly simplistic system with very low budget. And, and everywhere I work, since I, I got introduced to Tony's work, I've looked at the same um, events everywhere. Everywhere you go across deserts, you don't see the animals very often because they're only there now and again. When there's a flush of moisture, there's a bit of flush of vegetation, they'll run animals across and they're gone again. You, you have to be there to see the event. But what they're doing is they're grazing off the regrowth trees, almost like a copper stump. And, and it just looks like a dead tree most of the year, and it rains and it flushes vegetation, it throws up a few mouldy stems, little surviving tree out there with some kind of surviving root system, gets grazed off again. Tony stopped all that. He got people, look, just let me test this with you. You stop the grazing in an area for a while. Let's cut all the regrowth stems off the trees, except for one, the strongest one, and let's see what happens. And bang, up they go into a tree real fast. And then you've got shade, then you've got less evaporation from wind. You've got some organic matter. The little stems they cut off, they use for firewood. He gave them like the ideas of rocket stoves that they yeah. could cook in with a little bit, you know, stick fuel. And, and it, just, it just started to go viral. It went so right. on a livestock then, are they taking the fodder to the goats instead of the goats to the fodder so that they're not damaging the land? That's it. Okay. And, yeah. And this literally is a little sharp blade that don't have to have a pair of secateurs or anything. You can do it just with a little $2 pocket knife. And what a system. I mean, it's just uh, huh. uh, the man needs a Nobel Prize for that one, I reckon. And his last name, as you said, is it Ronaldo? Ronaldo, yeah. If you just look up FMNR okay. on our website or, or just Google it and you, he'll come up. Okay, great. And I'll make sure I put some, some links to his stuff in the show notes because that's. That's absolutely fascinating, Jeff. Yeah, when he hasn't put in the earthworks or anything else, he just did one. It's often something so simple, too simple. It's almost like nature knows what she's doing if we'll let her. Sorry. It's almost like nature knows what she's doing if we'll let her. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, what we often do when we plant trees is we 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 haven't got the ability to grow good enough trees in uh, in nurseries that then survived the first year of planting. So it's such a shame that well-intended tree plantings are often not very successful. 
So in, in a lot of damaged ecosystems, it, it's an alarming figure of about 11 trees in a thousand that survive that are planted. Um, we should be paid for trees that grow, not trees that are planted. Is there ways we can do a better job of that? I mean, is there certain practices that need to be implemented? With there, are some, there, there are some very unusual nursery systems that are more successful. They're, they're not so common and not often adopted. But the thing that Tony came up with was the, these trees are, are survivors, um, proven by their, the fact that they still exist after so much grazing. So they're guaranteed genetic survivors, guaranteed genetically strong. Um, but um, we've um, um, we have some unusual um, nursery systems in Australia that um, are, are uh, extending a little bit. They're 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 rather unconventional um, with pots um, with uh, air holes in the side. So you've got sort of uh, instead of your conventional nursery pot, you've got a a, a tree planting pot. Um, there's peppered with holes all the way around the sides, mm. and uh, the trees uh, grow lateral roots much, much stronger. And uh, then when they hit holes in the side of the pot, they air prune, um, and they form very strong root systems of trees. And they and they uh, grow three times the speed of, of normal uh, potted trees because they're often growing in a sort of root ball that needs to be, un, you know, needs to untangle itself before it starts to grow in the soil. Sure. Uh, those same systems have also been flood irrigated. So people are now often using, they're starting to use, let's say, um, these shallow tanks um, where what you do is uh, these same pots that have got holes peppered all around the side, um, instead of watering from above with a sprinkler, you actually fill a, a shallow tank. So they're flood irrigated from underneath mm. and then once the pots are completely saturated with water so there's no damp and, and wet and dry spots in the pot it's completely saturated because it's literally gone under water for a few minutes then the the, the, the water is drained and what they do is they weigh the weigh the tree in the pot when it's saturated after the water's drained but it's saturated with water and then they don't irrigate again until it's um, two thirds the weight. I got you. They keep weighing the trees to see when they need water again in relation so, to the weight. It, it's kind of like flush and drain aquaponics, then. Yeah, well, I've actually thought about whether we could actually do that and link it to growing systems wow. uh, like aquaponics or or, or something similar. Um, what is very handy with that system too for deserts for your desert uh, listeners is. You, you can recycle that water through the nursery continuously. You're losing very little water. Sure, yeah. Most of the sense. water is actually going to tree growth, and it's not wasted on past um, the nursery uh, or soaked on somewhere else. So if you're very limited on water, those soak systems are great, and those those uh, Trent uh, Trentcom is the name of the company that developed it here in Australia, um, and um, they're called Rocket Pots and rocket racks, um, a, 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 a very clever little invention. And I've seen the results of those trees, and you start putting those out on swales where trees grow three times the speed they do anywhere else anyway, and you've really got a fast system. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So there's a, there's a product I want, maybe you, maybe you haven't seen it, maybe you have, maybe you looked at it or, or, or tried it. 
or you might be just like, I don't know, and I, I can't tell you. There's a product called Groasis that uh, is by a guy out of either the UK or uh, right in like the London area, or it might be from Ireland, I'm not sure. But basically it looks like it's this round thing that has a water reservoir in it and a little dripper, and it creates a microclimate, and it gives the tree less water than it really needs, so it makes this kind of funnel shape, and it drives the taproot down, and his whole point is to regreen the deserts. Have you, have you seen that at all? Yeah, yeah, it's like it's a little evaporative. It creates a little bit of um, condensation inside it as well. Correct. Yeah, you put a few liters of water in there to get it started, and it catches. If it does rain, it catches that. It catches. Uh, it, it catches uh, condensation. Have you guys actually played with those things at all? Yeah, we were thinking about getting some and just you know trying them out. Um, but it, it seems like it makes perfect sense anyway from a theoretical standpoint. Yep. Um. John, Louie, and I have both looked at those, um, and they do seem to work. Uh, you do still need to choose the right tree, and you still sure. need to plant it in the right place. It's not obviously design itself. It's a, it's a little tool. The problem is we're talking about billions of trees. Although yeah. some of those, one of the systems were that you could reuse it on yep. other trees after it's got a tree established, or another process was to make them... Uh, biodegradable, so it sort of rots down after a period of time as mulch. That'd be um, so maybe it's you know then it's cheaper as an element to start with, um, and and we see some results with those, um, but it, the, the the numbers game is the problem. Sure, um, you really are talking about a lot of trees. I mean, I don't. I tell my students don't plant trees. Planting trees is a waste of time. Don't bother planting trees. You're, you're joking. Plant ecosystems. Got you. You've got to plant an ecosystem. A tree by itself is damn useless. It can't support itself on its own, very rarely. It's a pretty unusually genetic special if it does that. You, and that's one of those Tony Ronaldo choices. You've, you've checked it out with goats grazing it off for many years. I mean, you, you don't know how to do that. We don't know how to select those genetics very easily. But you've got to plant an ecosystem, a self-supported ecosystem, which is a whole layered set of assembly and support species. And then you can move in. You can have your, your major uh, climax species or productive species or major functional species central to an ecosystem-type planet. So you've got to think. We've got to think ecosystems. That's a lot of those little pots. And that's... Uh, you know, even in yeah. a small area, people are shocked at how densely I plant trees. I, I, <laughs> I've um, got a bit of a reputation of overstacking, but I'd rather overstack than understack every single time. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I mean, I do that with even cover cropping when I'm throwing down like legumes like uh, red cowpea or whatever. It's easy to take some out, but once That's they're it. going, it's hard to put more in. Yeah, you've just lost time. Correct. You can Correct. stack extra time into a system and still come out in front. But if you don't stack enough time into a system, you come out behind. So you're Absolutely. in a, you're in, you're in a, a um, I say to people, you're in a spatial race with the weeds. And you've got to disfavor what you don't want. You don't have to kill it. You just have to disfavor it so that you win the race. And the race is to a, a beneficial ecosystem establishment, whatever that might be. Whatever you want the end result to be, whatever the productivity or function or um, establishment is, the climax, you've got to win the race, especially at the beginning of the race. You've got to really disadvantage what you don't want at the start line. Got you. Got you. So if we can shift gears to like another problem, because I think this is a problem that most Americans aren't even aware of. 
and you seem to have a pretty big insight to it. And it's not a place without a lot of water. It's a place with tons of water. And it's our whole Mississippi River Delta. And I don't think most Americans, many who live right around that area, and they look and they see all this green and all this lush, realize that there's actually a real problem there. And not only is there a problem there, there's a permaculture solution to it. And I know that you're very aware of this because you've talked about it in, in the, the one PDC that I saw you do. Could you kind of explain that problem and what its solution really is? Yeah. Well, that's a great one. Um, what a wonderful river. <laughs> it is. It is. Parts uh, of it don't go where it used to go, but it's, it is a great river system. <laughs> I, I worked in northwest Louisiana for quite a few years going back and forwards, and I was actually working um, on a um, Louisiana Army Ammunition Manufacturing Plant redesign um, near Minden, uh, Bo- uh, close to Bossier City, Shreveport, Bossier City area. And, um, and then I ended up working in Lafayette and New Orleans with the Cypress Academy and Tulane University. So I ended up with quite an understanding of the, of the, uh, the Cypress swamps and uh, um, thinking in the larger scale as we do in, in permaculture, looking at whole systems, the, the, the complete basin and catchment of the Mississippi, which is a major part of America. And um, you have... Uh, um, the Army Corps of Engineers, who used to write our paychecks out of Rock Island, Illinois, for that job, um, we were able to um, we were able to communicate with the, the, the Army Corps of Engineers, and, and they've done most of the, a lot of the civil engineering work on uh, the levee banks and the uh, barrage dams up the Mississippi. And um, what we've done is we've kind of controlled the river um, to do what we wanted to do. Uh, rather than what it could possibly do. And you've got an order two river there, uh, so it's in the largest rivers of the world, except the Amazon, which is in a class of its own as an order one river. So this is a major order two river, and uh, what an incredible river. It pulls so much catchment out of North America. It just about starts in Canada. Um, so... Um, and the bottom lands there, the Atchafalaya Swamp, is such a glorious system. And all of those major settlements down in the bottom lands near New Orleans, they're up on uh, great big deposition banks, um, where the river is up higher than the floodplain, uh, like most of the classic rivers of the world. Um, and they've been formed by the deposition of millions of years of floods. And uh, that area at the bottom of the Mississippi there has a a geological tilt that's going down slightly. So that was compensated by the deposition of all the silts and nutrients that used to fall out with the giant floods, which now don't really happen so much. So directing water downstream uh, towards the Gulf of Mexico, um, and and that's taken with it a lot of nutrient um, and a lot of um, other additives that have put onto the agricultural soils and landscapes of America, and that's causing that uh, hypoxia zone, that dead zone in the, in the, in the Gulf, uh, which could be completely reversed. It could be turned into uh, a life-rich, uh, the absolute opposite, a life-rich zone, a nutrient-rich, um, beneficial out, out, outfall of America. And that was my dream. Uh, that was, a, the, you know, thinking big. <laughs> That's the ultimate uh, contract in America to reverse the uh, effects of the, of the Mississippi down there. And um, 
and repatterned the landscape so that it became a, a biological filter rather than um, a nutrient and uh, toxicity drain. Uh, what we've done is we've uh, we've taken a basic principle and reversed it, and uh, that is uh, the principle of the fertility uh, of water. Um, so water uh, water should uh, take the longest path over uh, the most distance, over the most time, moving as slowly as possible, uh, with as much passive friction as possible, rubbing up against as many living things or beneficial elements along the way. That's the, the, the principle of watering landscape for myself, and I think if most permaculture designers thought about it, they would agree that's what they're actually doing. They're putting water uh, to work. Water has duties to perform for us in the landscape, and if we um, design it well, then water becomes our major asset, and um, its first duty is to create life, its second duty is to create productivity within itself in the form of aquaculture. And its third duty, and it is the third duty, is uh, to um, be har harvest energy through my mechanical um, um, elements like uh, paddle wheels and, and turbines and, and electric generation and things like that. But first, life then aquaculture and then energy in that order um, and if we repattern um, our catchment um, catchment by catchment and and if, if anybody's listening who wants to take on a top catchment of like one of the top catchments one of the side branches of the mississippi and start at the top and come down a section we can actually prove this and, and John Louis' work proves it. You can see it in that hope in a changing climate, that, that, that small catchment they did in Rwanda. If you can do that, catchment by catchment in the, in the Mississippi, or like all the major river systems of the world, that, that'll do it. That'll set the world-changing example of where we need to go. Um, so be, uh, and, and, and the wealth of America continues uh, in, a, in a biological sense, which is always going to be the, the, the largest wealth we'll ever create, the living wealth. See, and I think there'd be a huge financial payoff there, too, as well, because just the impact on the fisheries in the Gulf, without having that dead zone that's always there and the giant one that's there in the middle of summer, if that were gone, the impact on the fishery industry alone would probably pay for the reconstruction of, of you know, from the Delta up to, to, uh, to the Canadian border. Unimaginable. An unimaginable amount of wealth. And, and just to put it in some American terminology, what are you creating? You're creating future oil in the biological rock <laughs> of those elements, aren't you? I mean, that's what yeah. you're actually doing. And at the moment, yeah. you're not going to have any oil in the millennia of the future because you're removing all the biological deposits that create the damn stuff, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> we could, uh, I mean, it, it sends the imagination off on incredible time zones thinking about this, but there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but that's uh, um, at such an encapsulated catchment there. The Mississippi is such a large part of North America and, and the major element of wealth in the original biology. Um, and uh, a key point in redesigning it all. And, um, and we could subsidize it catchment by catchment, economy by economy, as we regenerate. And I mean, people are, are very quick to take initiative. 
subsidized or not, once you see everybody doing better somewhere nearby, you just go and do it, don't you? And you just copy yeah, on. Absolutely, yeah. Peer pressure in a positive way, right? Yeah. So kind of switching gears again as we get toward wrapping up here, uh, my, one of my hot-button issues, one of the biggest things that I just have like a passionate hatred of, and I, I remember watching Bill one time saying, follow your anger, it'll lead you faster than what you love, uh, is that what I see companies like Monsanto and Bayer, et cetera, ConAgra, dealing with genetically modified organisms, and I, I don't just hate the fact that they're doing it, I hate what they're modifying it to do. So I take something like soy and I modify it so I can spray it with, with glyphosate so that I can spray glyphosate, uh, glyphosate three times a year on the same field I used to spray it on once. Um, how big a danger do you think that whole sector represents? Oh, well, first off, I'd like to start, I would say the, the, the problem could be the solution here. I'd love to have their research budget. Sure. <laughs> and if we just turned it around, we, we, you know, we could see that, you know, biological speciation, the encouragement of biological speciation is a completely different game. If we're looking at diversity rather than simplicity, if we change that research budget into creating a new species every six minutes through speciation, which I think we could do because speciation is, is something completely different. But genetic modification in the laboratory for specific results and it can be used as a weapon here because it could be infertility genes that you're splicing into corn or any of those kind of weird things um, you're playing Russian roulette with the gene pool and you never know when it's going to come back and bite you or that bullet comes around in the chamber and we've nearly done it a couple of times the, the genetic modification of the cloud seeding bacteria that sits on all green material leaves on all leaves pseudomonas syringae that happened in the 1970s so and and there was scientific uproar i mean nobody knew about gmos back then much it wasn't public knowledge but we genetically engineered a bacteria that sits on the on the leaf surface area of most plants almost all plants and trees and when it blows off to the atmosphere it it captures ice nuclei because it's just oh my God. classically formed like a little spiky element, a spiky bacteria. And that's what makes most of the rain inland from the oceans. Once you get past a few mountain ranges or a couple of rains, three or four rains back on the coast. Now, potentially Is that what Bill Molson put out back in the 80s that they finally confirmed like, you know, 10 years ago that you could tell... The, the the where rain came from by the density of the molecules of the water, ba you know whether it was ocean generated or tree generated, is that what you're talking about? That's it. Pseudomonas syringae. Pseudomonas oh, is the genus. Syringae is the species. And and it was genetically engineered to have bumps on it to stop frost damage on strawberries. Ugh. So we were going to get a lot of strawberries, but we could have lost twenty to fifty percent of the world's rain if it started to crossbreed through the other pseudomonas. So that was, that was potentially a sociopathic scientific behavior, potentially. And then the, the event that sparked Elaine Ingham's uh, soil food web extension was the um, genetically modified soil organism um, that could be introduced to crop waste um, that created a byproduct of alcohol. Uh, um, which could have been used as another product or a fuel. 
nobody's soil tested there in a laboratory with plants. They just soil tested it. They just tested it in soil, but not with plants. And alcohol in the soil is a complete plant poison. So when she tested it, she got permission to test it. All plants died. So and and that was very close to being released. It was only a few days away before her process stopped down. Now, so, so that literally would have been like a plant plague globally. Well, that could have been like the blob. I mean, it would have just. What are you going to do? Nuke it? I mean, it, it's, it could be. You can't whistle these things back in. They're microorganisms, and they, their life cycles are fast. So out, out it went. And if that had blown up in the air and gone aerosol, um, it would have been like patches of dead zones coming up across the planet. That's horrific. Oh. I don't know how you stop that. Um, and then you're going to see desertification, all right. Um, and global economy will just forget it. I mean, it's just going to have no relevance whatsoever. Um, we've got to realize that the real global economy is in extending life systems and not depleting life systems, and we know we can do it. We know we can increase life systems worldwide. Why don't we do that? It's not that expensive. It was not, nowhere near as expensive as the loss we're going into continuously now as we spiral down in the economy. Um, so, yeah, I mean... Um, we should reverse those budgets. I mean, it's pretty simple. It's got to be life-enhancing, soil-creating. We've got to increase diversity, increase organic matter. You know, living systems have to be enriching all the time, not depleting all the time. And, and if we set a few standards like that, I mean, organic agriculture is just not good enough. It, it can still be soil depleting, water depleting, you know, um, people exploiting. And just because it's organic, we tend to think, oh, well, it's all cool. Well, it's not. And some of the worst exploited agriculture I've seen recently is organic. Yeah, I mean, I tell people all the time, destroying angel mushroom is organic, but if you eat one, you're dead. Right? Yeah. I mean, just because it's organic doesn't mean it's good. Uh, what do you call it? A castor bean uh, is, is organic, but it can make sarin gas out of it. Yeah. Uh, they're, 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 I've seen in, in California 40 tons of carrots produced on an acre um, over, you know, that's the average across 700 acres of monoculture carrots where, um, you know, Mexican workers are, are, are almost enslaved to weed and, and farm these carrots and, and there's um, a, a, a giant diesel pump running 24-7 sucking the aquifer down uh, to a big storage dam and another diesel uh, diesel pump running 24-7 running traveling irrigators and you know 10,000 trucks of organic compost brought in every year to dump down on these carrots and the aquifers going down the soils becoming more saline um, the immigrant workers are, are, are underpaid and yet you've got trendy organic carrots in a valley where 10,000 native people used to live and, and steelhead salmon used to run upstream in a river that's now dry and dead. That's not, what, the, what that's organic, but it's not sustainable. It's got a very short lifetime. It's economic. It makes money, but that doesn't make it sustainable. So that's the wrong economy. That's not the economy we're talking about. We're talking about a completely different economy. You know, when you talk about economy, I just think that if we could get 
corporations and businesses to just think in a little, not even a huge time horizon, just a, a little bit longer time horizon, a 10 to 15 year planning cycle versus a quarterly planning cycle that, that what we are advocating doing actually is far more profitable, even from a pure economic standpoint. You just have to give it time to, to kind of, it's like almost like a system reboot, like, okay, you've screwed it up. Now you have to do a restart. Oh, yeah, and the popularity would be incredible. I'd give it three to five. Okay. I'd go three to five years. And that's not that big of a time horizon, but everything in America, everything in the, in the, the, the civilized world that's on a public stock exchange is measured on a quarterly basis, four times a year. No one's looking out to the fifth year, which is, which is actually very ironic because when you invest in a, a stock, you're paying today, hopefully paying less today than it will be worth you know, five years from now. That's the whole point. But but that's not how investors think, and that's that's part of it. I, probably an educational paradigm that's too deep to get into today. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, with our project work, we find after three years, if things go go well and we've got some reasonable funding, in three years it's pretty damn obvious you're on a winner, and in five years you know you're on a winner, no question, no question. So at three years, you look at it and think, wow, this is really something's really happening here. This is really worth keeping going on. This is worth keeping. At the five years, you go, we, we know. It's done. It's a done deal at five years. It's just a matter of sitting there and watching it, watching the interest come in. Yeah, and I just watched a video you put out uh, of what 10 years uh, on the PRI there did. And uh, it was pretty amazing. So I'll make sure I put a video of that in the show notes so people can see what you guys did in, in 10 years, which – in the, the the time frame of even a human lifetime isn't that long, but for human history, it's 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 nothing. Yeah, well, I, we were with no funding. We camped on this site originally, and we taught six thousand odd students in that time, and and they got in the way of us developing the land because we spent a lot of time on irrigation and uh, on education, and a lot of time on on helping people make mistakes here, on turning our site over to a lot of people so they can practice on it and half that time I've been working overseas on aid projects as well so, uh, it so it's really, really not 10 years in, no. in reality there was three years from, t- from 2003 to 2006 where I never touched the site I went overseas and went from aid project to aid project and literally it was a little bit more than three years we were actually off the site so it's, it's seven years of being here but most of that time has been consumed in education and um Everybody is coming now more and more informed with the, the internet, but less and less physically capable of doing anything because they spend so much time on the internet. They're less and less skilled, and, and, and therefore more and more concerned. They've got access to information, good and bad, um, and, and, but they've got less and less physical skill because they've, 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 they need to reskill and they don't know how to, and very few people are providing that. And so people are more and more concerned, and, and we're, we're dealing with people's concern, you know, so we, you know, to, to, to get them sort of functional and, and, and positive. Um, so education centers are a major thing, education centers and demonstration sites are what we concentrate on. We just need, uh, you know, as many as we can, and um, there's no shortage of, of clients. We're in a boom industry. And, well, and, and, and I think the other thing is, like, that more and more people need to understand, like, do what you can with what you have. So, like, go get some experience, even if it's in your, your little small, you know, twentieth of an acre backyard. Go do something because as much concern as you have, action is the way to address the concern. And then 
I, I think you've said this many times. A lot of times people think, like, I don't have enough space, I don't have enough area. But the more restrictions you place on yourself when you start actually applying the knowledge, the more elegant the design becomes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the small areas um, of diverse perennial plantings are incredible. And it's such therapy. You go into a new learning curve, an experiential curve. So you, you get a, a sort of... Um, you get an, a, a, an academic memory sort of boost and a muscle memory boost as well. So you're getting physical and mental health and, 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 and you move into a sort of positive mode of action. And, and then I think we start to function well. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think we've kind of wrapped up an hour here a little bit over. But uh, you want to remind people how they can, uh, if they want to help out the work you guys are doing there at, at the PRI in Australia, uh, and, and contribute and chip in a little bit how they can do that? Yeah, you can contact us uh, and, and see our, our website on uh, permaculture.org.au and um, have a look at our worldwide uh, projects there onto the uh, permacultureglobal.com. So those two websites uh, are, um, are open and running and, and you can see the, the depth and, and breadth of permaculture and, and all the work we're, we're helping people with. We uh, um we have a, a permaculture master plan for people who want to set up demonstration sites and education centers and a, a, a contract of how we help you get going. So all of that's on our website, permaculture.org.au. And, um, and thank, thanks for the, the opportunity, Jeff. Oh, thanks for being here, Jeff. Uh, this is a absolute wide open invitation. Anytime you want to come back and speak to our audience and our community, you are more than welcome. Uh, it, it, it's really a big honor to have you on the show. You're one of uh, my, you know, whatever uh, ever meeting me, you've taught me more than you'll probably ever know, and you've been one of my true mentors. So, so thanks for being here with us. Pleasure. We'll do it again, eh? Yeah, absolutely. And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today with Jeff Lawton, helping you figure out how to live that better life at times you're tough. Or even if they don't. Seen our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better. a better way.
revolution. 